Um, I read something this week that I felt was like absolutely 1,000% true. And it's that most males choose their sports team when they're about eight or nine years old and they let it ruin their life from pretty much then on out, all right? And so uh, they're going to decide at eight years old that they're in on the Broncos and then every year they're just going to let that poison them uh, until they go into the grave. If you're a Cowboys fan, it's never going to get better, all right? Um, It's just, it, it is what it is. And I started to feel that because uh, I don't really have a pro sports team, but I went to the University of Oklahoma, uh, as did my wife, and so we're OU fans, and our players go into the NFL, and we follow them into the NFL. So we may not have an NFL team, but we watch our players that go, and we want all of them to succeed. We cheer for whatever team has more OU players on it. One of our players has kind of been going through this drama, gets traded, goes to this other team, and I felt myself be emotionally attached to what this guy's going through, and there is no reason for it in the Bible, all right? And I, I just felt attached to that, and I just kind of started to kind of be convicted about that, like maybe I need to not pay attention to this as much. As bad as that is, what's worse, in my estimation, is being a bandwagon fan, it's being a bandwagon fan, and some of you are here. What that, here's what a bandwagon fan is. You're for whatever team's winning, right? I watch highlights with my daughters this way. I start to, we watch two teams play. They have no idea what's going on. I'm like, hey, wh- who are you cheering for? The blue team or the red team? And they're like, whichever team's going to win. That's who I'm in, right? Uh, I had a college student, never cheered for teams. He would buy whatever jersey T-shirt was popular at that time. If Gulf Coast Community College was winning in the NCAA bracket, he's got the GC shirt on. Nobody even knows who that is. But he's a bandwagon fan. And as soon as things, tell me, start to go south, he trades out that t-shirt for something else. He's in only as long as it's convenient or cool for him. And then... It starts to hit the fan and he's out, all right? And he's on to the next team, he's on to the next trend, and I would argue maybe as bad as choosing your team at eight years old and riding with them is, something that's worse is bandwagoning. And so I say that to say that when we come to the text today and the arrest of Jesus, we're going to find a bunch of disciples that are bandwagon believers, That at this stage in their story, they are not ride or die. They are out the first time that handcuffs get involved. The first time that it could potentially look like it's going to cost them to be connected to Jesus. And they're just going to exit stage left. And so here's the thing. I want to look at particularly Peter and his denial and this arrest... And I want to distill out of it probably the same spirit and the same sin in us that would cause us to deny Jesus and exit stage left. I want to preach the gospel in such a way that God, by His grace, might cause some permanence in us that they, at this part of their story, did not have. So I want to rebuke the spirit of bandwagoning anything that has to do with Christ. So, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. Um, If you'd assume a posture of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you created all things for your glory, including our cells and our hair and our families, the color purple and grass. The beauty of trees, the awesomeness of rain. All things speak to your majesty, your power, and your glory. And so God, far be it from us to come into this room having expectations that it's about us. As though the universe revolves around us or we're the center. And so God, would you um, come here and be the pastor and the shepherd and the teacher? And would you make your word clear again? 
even if it means bringing godly sorrow like you did to Peter, who wept at how inconsistent his life was up next to your word. Father, would you come here and bring gospel clarity, truth, help us to understand that we might live. For some here, they have not given their lives fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never been converted and transformed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would begin that work here today and today would be the salvation for those folk. We need your help. We need your grace. So, Holy Spirit, come and do more uh, than any man can do. It's all for your name. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. If you've got a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 14. You can um, skim and dart your eyes over to verse 26. Uh, let's jog just a little bit. We are talking about the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus in Mark chapter 14. I've said this before, and I'm not going to have all the time to get into it. Mark chapter 14 is incredibly rooted in Zechariah not, uh, chapter 9 through chapter 14. We've already introduced that in the triumphal entry. The reason why Jesus is going to roll in on that Honda Civic of a donkey into Jerusalem is because of a prophecy in Zechariah and this is going to pick up in the exact same thing when it starts talking about that if you strike the shepherd the sheep are going to flee They're, he's going to be treated like a robber this idea of injustice is I mean Jesus is manifesting what Zechariah prophesied about so we talked about that he's going to leave the city on the east side he's going to descend into the Kidron Valley we discussed this last time where at this time of Passover the blood from the sacrifices would have mingled with the spring rains and the blood and the water would have flowed through the Kidron Valley that he passes he goes to the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane Gethsemane is a word that simply means like olive press so likely this was a private plantation or farm or ranch that was a regular dive for him. That Judas would have known the password to the treehouse where they commonly hung out and went to. And so Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane having predicted the fact that all of his boys are going to bail on him. And they're going to be, they're going to be out. That when it, and Peter's like, no, not me. I'm not falling away. Like I will never leave. I'll die before do and all the disciples saying the same thing what's curious about that is that in the same gospel of mark you were here uh we talked about the parable of the sower anybody remember that 14 years ago when we were there all right uh, the parable of the sower it said that some of the seed falls on rocky soil right y'all remember that and it has it receives the word with joy but it has no root and then eventually it falls away. Y'all remember that? That word, fall away, is exactly the same Greek word that's happening right here when he says, all of you will fall away. When he talks about when they will abandon him, it's a Greek word, scandalizo, which is where we get the word scandal. And why in the parable do they fall away? It says because of trials and tribulations. And when persecution arises, they're out. And this is going to be exactly what happens to the disciples. Same word, same concept, same reality. Is that when Jesus is going to get struck, or maybe in our context, when Jesus ceases to be popular, when, when Jesus costs you persecution, when Jesus is going to cost you your job, when it's not going to be a social benefit for you to be a Christian, but it's going to be a social cost there's going to be a thinning of the church. Amen or oh me. And so we came into this time where Jesus is predicting their fall. And then he invites them into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. Particularly uh, Peter, James, and John. Peter and the sons of thunder. And he, he gets them within an earshot of him to do something that he could have done solo. And one of the things is that Jesus wants them to invite them in to do something he could do for himself. By the way, that's all of Christianity. God can evangelize and save whoever he wants to in all of the world, and yet he invites his church to be a part of it. Because it not only gives him glory, but it brings about your good. He's like a father that lets his kids be involved in the work that he's doing. He gets a twofer. Both glory for him and sanctification and growth and intimacy with you. 
And so he invites them in to pray. And we said this, it's like sit here, watch and pray. And they are like toddlers. That the moment you set them and say, stay near to me and pray, you just hear the Amber Alert and the announcement over at Walmart that they've wandered into a clothing rack. Right? And what's ironic about that is that these are the same cats that came to Jesus earlier in the same gospel saying, Jesus, I want to sit next to you in glory on your left and your right. We love sitting next to you. Unless it means praying. Like sitting next to you to glory, I'm all in. How about praying? How about sit? Do you notice that in this same chapter that was read by our brother, he talks about that Peter follows at a distance. All right, Peter, where's all that nearness now? You love being near Jesus, but now you want to follow him at a distance. And so Jesus is inviting them to prepare and to pray as his betrayal is at hand. And we talked about this in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Jesus, as he leaves the city and he enters into this, is following the exact same path that King David followed as he left the city, as his son Absalom betrayed him and he wept. And he's inviting his, his mighty men to be with him. And they're just not. And so they, they bail. And they don't pray. And so an observation we made last time was if you do not pray, you will be swept away in Jesus denying temptation. Pray that you enter not into temptation. I take from that, that without prayer, I will be swept away in Jesus denying temptation. I forfeit the very opportunity to have any kind of success in my life. To have any kind of chance to push back against the evil that seeks my soul, just like it sought Peter's. As Satan said, he wanted to sift Peter like like wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And after you have recovered, encourage your brothers. There's very few things that enable us to encourage others than how we have recovered from our own failure. And I think that it's right to say here that we can make all the excuses for them that we want But when Jesus needed them in the garden, and when Jesus needed them at his arrest, they failed him. They failed him. And we could say, well, they had Passover, so it's a lot of bread and unleavened bread. So it's like they ate the Texas Roadhouse rolls, and they went too hard at Olive Garden. And so they're just in that drunk food coma thing that happened. And we're like, here's all the things. But when he needed them, they're deucing out. And we talked about this, that many of us have had friends fail us. That they left us alone when we knew we didn't need to be alone. That when we needed them in the foxhole with us, they were looking for a reason to escape. And we we said that if somebody that didn't know you, like cut and run on you, it felt a certain way. But it feels a different level of sting, a different twisting of the knife when it's actually your compadres and who you have leaned on and who you've even maybe there been for. When they cut tail and run, doesn't it just hit different? Jesus, our master, knows what it's like to have friends fail him. While at the same time we say what is glorious about Jesus is that he's a friend that doesn't fail. He's a friend that's closer than any brother. To the point where he will not allow this temporal failure in Peter or the disciples' life to be final and ultimate. Matter of fact, in Christ, God is able to work our worst failures into some sort of mysterious yet wise good that's the best news you got in here is that your worst failure is an ultimate it doesn't get the last word Jesus gets the last word there's no failure that you have that is bigger than the cross I don't know what you think Christianity is As though you came in here trying to achieve some level of perfection where you're better than all these other people on the left and right. But instead, it's actually a message of that humanity is fallen and we failed. 
in our relationship to God, but God has not failed in His relationship to us. That's the beauty of the cross. It's the beauty of Christianity. And so, even as we've left Him alone, He's not left us or forsaken us without a mode of salvation in the cross. Um, I, I, I'm going to do one more Top Gun reference and then I'm going to cool it for a while, alright? But they, it was just a good movie, alright? And we're, we're kind of in a famine for good movies and when we get one, we've got to hold on. Alright, and they made a new one and it made me go back and watch the first movie. By the way, first movie was rated PG. Did you know that? I think, th- I think that goalpost has moved a little bit. Um, I don't remember that movie being the way that it did. We went back and watched uh, uh, the first Top Gun movie and Spoiler alert, goose dies. I'm sorry, all right? The, the flying second main best friend of Maverick is in an accident. He dies. I don't remember this, but there was a montage, five minutes of the movie of Tom Cruise just being alone. Like, it was the saddest. It, it looked like an antidepressant commercial, okay? He's just walking around, and that's usually, you don't remember that because you had tears in your eyes when you were watching it, Okay? And you're just sad for him. And you're like, hey, this guy does not need to be alone. And even the guy, the, his boss comes in and is like, you need to get him up in a plane as soon as possible. Like, move him on 100%. Like, he doesn't need to be alone. But it's like five minutes of just clips of Tom Cruise staring off in the distance. Full emo, okay? And it, you, you look at it and you're like, he just lost his wingman. Just lost his wingman. And he's going into one of the scariest times of his life. And this brother just needs people. And he ain't got them. And the, the sense of the emotion of that moment pales in comparison to the heaviness of what Christ is heading to to take the sin of the world onto himself. To where medically he's going to bleed drops of blood from the stress it's going to put inside of him. And listen, I know you got stress when the dash lights come on in your car. But the brother is taking upon himself the wrath of God. The penalty of your crimes against your creator. There is no greater weight What a friend we have in Jesus. Okay. That's about as, uh, that's my jog. Okay. Um, 42, let's pick up there. Um, I, I'm going to tell you, last week, this week, and 15, 1 through 15 are all going to bleed together, and I'm going to have to jump a little bit. So um, I don't usually do that, but there's so many strands interconnecting uh, 26 through 15, 1 through 15, that I, I'm just going to have to move around in ways I don't usually do. But let's look at 42. Leaving the garden, verse 42, rise, let us be going, my betrayers at hand. And we said this, sometimes you do not get a second chance to pray. Their chance to pray and prepare for what's hard is gone. If you didn't get ready in the space God gave you to pray for that thing, and you were just on social media burning up six hours of your time, you're not getting that prayer time back. Your time to prepare is over. Rise. Let's get after it. Verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came. One of the twelve. Doesn't that just kind of turn it? And with him, a crowd. Um, Tyrell, if you want to pull up the, um, the slide here. With swords and clubs, which I always think about like cavemen or tire checkers. And the chief priests and the scribes and elders with pencils, I guess. I don't know. And 44. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign. Look at what that says, sign. Sign. Um, What's interesting about this, has it not been that word sign the whole time have to do with Jesus giving signs? Like, Jesus' miracles were a signpost pointing to that he's the Messiah. He's on the donkey. It's a signpost saying, Zechariah 9 through 14, I'm the Messiah. Everything that he's teaching, everything that he's doing is in rhythm with Scripture as a signpost so that you know who He is. We repay Him with a little sign of our own. Now the sign that humanity gives back to God 
for all of his signs and wonders, is a sign of betrayal. He gave them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and seize him, control him, handle him, lead him away under guard. Then when he came up to him at once, he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him, and seized him. And one of those who stood by, that's a funny way to put that, Peter. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. What he's basically saying is, your timing on this little affair might seem a little shady, a little convenient, right? You could have got me any time. Why at night? Um, that'll be important. I'll talk more about that next sermon next week. But let the scriptures, scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. And then we even got into 51, 52. The young man followed him, nothing on but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, and he left with the linen cloth and ran away naked. And I talked about... This is a first-person account. This is historical, and that's why information like that exists. It's not mythology. Somebody was there and ran away European Adrian Peterson spin move naked to get away from the police, all right? And so because that happened, they put it in the Bible. Now, back up just a minute. Judas, he knew the stomping ground, the spot of all these, and he said that of all these signs, I'm going to give a sign, and I'm going to kiss him okay now first go to the next slide the other there's all four gospels talk about this and they say that amongst that rolled up on jesus was so i'm going to pull from different accounts here uh, of the gospel rise there was a cohort a cohort was at least 600 roman soldiers with swords here's the equivalent for you riot police when they send out a cohort it's the federales it's the feds and they're going to snuff an insurrection. That's what a cohort generally would do within the city. And we talked about from the early historian Josephus, there's over a million people likely in the city at this time. Then it adds that there's going to be temple police with clubs that are added to the 600. So you think like London street gang hooligans with baseball bats, they're rolling in on this party too. This makes a lot of sense because the Romans could carry swords where they would just execute or kill those that opposed them. The temple police didn't have swords. So they just beat people with sticks like old school style, right? You didn't want, the, if you're Roman, I don't want the temple police to have a ton of swords. And then what if we get in conflict with each other? So they made them um, use non-lethal force generally with basically like carrying baseball bats. And then the last thing was like the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're kind of coming to oversee this. And we talked about them coming from the Sanhedrin which we'll talk more about next week. So go to the next slide. Um, I've been challenged to use more slides. So this is a Caravaggio, which is why it's so kind of dark uh, lettering. But this is the betrayal of Jesus and the kiss here, which I, I think that a couple things. One is the armor that he's wearing. It's like he wouldn't have wore metal medieval armor like that. No, but I have no problem with people trying to communicate what it would look like in their time if Jesus would have got arrested. I also don't know what Jesus is doing with his hands, except I got this. I don't, I don't know what this is. Um, but this is a Caravaggio kind of famous. A less famous one is the next slide. Um, this is just creepy to me. I just, I don't, I don't know. But I feel like, I feel like if you're going to kiss another man, your eyes shouldn't be open. I don't know. I, it's like, they're just eye gazing here. And I struggle to put this on the slide, but you're welcome. So what would... What, and it looks like the mob of angry people behind in the next one. So uh, what would this look like maybe in our time to do that? So this is what was rolling upon Jesus. They got their bats ready. Um, maybe this is be a cultural reference like none of you are going to get. Go to the next one. Um, if you know who these people are. Um, <clears throat> so back to the text. This is a cohort of people that are looking to snuff out rebellion. This is the feds coming in. Let me put it to you like this. In Mark chapter 15, they're going to talk about another insurrection that had happened previously that was likely led by the murderer Barabbas. And this is exactly how historians think that they used a cohort to put down Barabbas 
who gets arrested and will be the one that they're going to say, who do you want, Barabbas, a murderer, or Jesus, the giver of life? And they're going to choose Barabbas. Okay? So insurrections like this, they had a protocol how to deal with them, and they've sent people out to get them. Now, the other thing is that they have torches because as they come out in the nighttime, um, they're looking for a needle in a stack of needles. So Judas is giving a signal of, I'm going to give him a kiss, something Jesus would not have been surprised by. I know this is hard for us as Americans, but Europeans still do this, all right? They do the, the kiss. Um, even in the Bible, a lot of the meet and greets that happen in the Bible were greeting one another with a holy kiss. And in France, for instance, where we served before, men only um, air kiss women. The only men that another man would air kiss was like their dad and their absolute best friend. Otherwise, men never air kiss other men in Europe. But it's exactly the same tradition. What they find weird from us Americans is that we hug each other. Like, if you ever get a European freak, just bear hug them sometime. And you will see them go super creeped out. The same way if they tried to kiss you. All right? rabbis with their disciples was an intimate relationship and he would have expected a greeting from Judas of a kiss. Judas turns a mark of honor into an act of betrayal. At night, they couldn't have maybe identified him any other way because maybe... Somebody in the crowd would have pulled the old Spartacus. I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. And they would have never found him. But Judas knew him and used his knowledge of Jesus to betray Jesus like all apostates do. They have just enough Christianity to betray Jesus in the most vicious and vitrolic ways. Judas was a fake friend who used his manners and his gestures and his greetings as a smokescreen for his true intentions to harm Jesus, to capture Jesus, to arrest Jesus, to control Jesus, to limit Jesus. He's a fake friend who uses, I know this is going to be hard for you, Durango, Bayfield, niceness. As a smoke screen. If I see one more be nice uh, bumper sticker, I'm going to be the opposite of nice. It's the most philosophically weak bumper sticker of all time next to coexist. Using manners as a smoke screen to control Jesus. Here's one thing I don't know if you've realized yet, but Jesus will not stay handled. Like you can try to handle him, but he ain't going to stay handled. Jesus treat Judas, sorry, treats the giver of life like a robber. Like a robber. You're coming out like a robber to me? I'm going to treat the giver of life, someone who gives, as a robber. In the first garden, wasn't this the same exact unbelief? In the moment that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. The temptation of Satan to Adam and Eve was that God was robbing you of something. In that first garden, they treated God like a robber. Your life's not complete. Your life's not complete. If you only had this sin, it would complete you in ways that God isn't. They treated God like a robber. Now in this garden, same unbelief. God is robbing me of something. Judas is saying, Jesus didn't live up to all that I wanted him to be. He's holding me back and I'll take 30 pieces of silver is better than Jesus. Jesus, in Judas's eyes, has to be replaced. Now, 47, as you look down, um, it says... But one of those who stood by. That's real funny because John, uh, who oftentimes is in competition with Peter, actually says that the person is Peter. Peter's own memoirs here in the Gospel of Mark, which was dictated by Peter, Peter leaves out his own name. All right? I love that. 
John's like, it was Peter. In Luke, it says, and this may be a problem for you, where are the swords at? Like, somebody's getting an ear cut off. Have the disciples been rolling with a Glock 9mm the whole time? Or where did they pick this up? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells them that before he said, no sword, no satchel, no money bag, but now if you've got them, go buy a sword. And they say, here, Lord, we have two swords. And Jesus says, it's enough. Right? So I don't know what happens if Jesus is like, distribute them to each of the sons of thunder, and when they come, you flip them or something. I don't know if there's strategy here, or if like Peter's dual-wielded both, both of the swords. I don't know what's happening. But they know that they have swords, which, by the way, I have friends. This is your self-defense NRA verse. I have friends that never go to church, but the one verse they know is the verse where Jesus tells people to buy swords. And that's your verse, Matt, for selling guns or whatever, all right? Um, and so they've got these swords, and Peter is the one who's going to cut off the ear of one of the servants, which John knows all of these people's names, so he puts it in his gospel. Of, and I don't know if that's an indictment that either Peter is really good with the sword or really terrible. Like, if he's aiming for an ear, that's awesome. But if he's aiming for the head and gets an ear... Less than awesome. I don't know if the guy was doing some sort of matrix flow back and he loses an ear. I don't know what went on there. But he gets an ear. So I don't know if maybe Peter just perfected the warning shot. Like, I got the ear, I'll take one piece at a time. Right? But I think there's one thing that we can get from John's account that gives us a sense of where did Peter get this bravado? Well, one thing is, is that when they roll up on him, they ask him, if you're Jesus, and he says in Greek, ego I me, I am. He uses the holy name of Yahweh in the Old Testament, and he says, I am. The one that he, Moses asked for God's name, and God said, I am. That's what Jesus says, and it blows the people, they fall back for a minute. So he kind of does this Gandalf word of power. People kind of step back from Jesus while they're rolling up with like a cohort. And so maybe Peter looks over at Jesus who just kind of pushed the crowd back a minute and says, it's go time, right? And so if you're next to Jesus and you think that he's going to be this kind of conquering king, Peter wants to go, I want to strike the first blow. So he comes out guns a-blazing. Jesus is going to, when we learn this from the other accounts, heal the ear cut off and rebuke Peter, showing him that this is not the way. Peter has a failure to listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 10 when he said exactly and predicted he would be treated this way. He fails to listen to Jesus in Mark 10 when he said this is the way. He fails to accept the plan of God at the great confession to the point where he has to be rebuked to get behind me, Satan. He is a failure in the garden to pray in Gethsemane to prepare for the plan. Is it any surprise now that he's screwing up the execution of the plan? Won't listen, won't accept, won't submit to God's will, and won't pray and prepare. And then you think you're just going to roll out there and execute. That's cute. Read the room, Peter. Like you think Jesus needs you like full Kevin Costner as a bodyguard? Like you think that he's dependent on you? In one account, Jesus uh, rebukes and says that he it could, if he willed, call 12 legions of angels, 12 legions of angels. Now, what's interesting, and i got to say this, angels in the Bible are not your, your auntie's precious moment babies in like a napkin, okay? Angels are F-16 fighter jets that fly around the throne of heaven in Isaiah 6 and terrify people. Angels in the Bible, one angel kills 185,000 Syrians in the Old Testament like he's mowing the lawn. All right? And he says 12 legions, that's 72,000 angels. And each angel holding his own against 185,000 Syrians. Peter, I think Jesus is good on the sword thing. 
See, Peter thinks he won't fall away. But he will fight a guy. And I feel like that's a really good verse for our church. All right? So here's the reality. Peter, before he can be used, has to be humbled. It's the school of hard knocks that God sends every Christian to. That before Peter can be used, he has to be humbled. So, the next passage, which I'm going to skip and I'm going to come to next week. Jesus catches a case. He's going to go to his arraignment. He's going to be beaten. And what, what Peter's going to do is the denial that he predicted. So, let's skip that part. We're going to go down to 66. Look at this. And Peter was below in the courtyard. And one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know, I love this next part. If any of you speak a second language, you'll love this. Nor understand what you mean. Jesus just went full, no comprehende espanol. I was like, he's warming himself. He's like, hey, you were with Jesus. It's like, I speak pig Latin, right? Uh, one time we were in Israel with a group, and I don't know if you know what pig Latin is, but it's undiscernible to foreign people. And whenever we would just have to negotiate and speak something they didn't know, we just use pig Latin. Or we or just no comprehende. He comes in and is like, I don't understand what you're saying. What, what are you speaking? Words? Don't under, I don't get it. And he went out the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man's one of them, right? Like drawing attention to him that he don't want that attention. And he began to deny it. And after a little while, the bystanders said again to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean, where Jesus did a ton of ministry. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Got to love Peter, you know, uh, going back to his sailor roots here, cussing like a sailor. Um, I do not, listen to the, the, I mean, just feel this. I do not know this man. Like, I don't know this man. Of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how he had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. The Word of God brings healthy, beautiful, godly sorrow. Because what Peter's mouth claimed to be and who Peter really was didn't match up to the Word. I don't know him. The rooster is essentially the alarm clock of the ancient world. And if you've got a homestead, you get this. I wonder for the rest of the Peter's life, every time he heard a rooster, he remembered his, his denials. Like every time he hears, I hate that bird. Right? It reminded him of his worst day, and he wept. I don't know him. Here's what Peter did. He downgraded his relationship to Jesus because he saw Jesus in handcuffs. I'm not his friend. All the way down to we're just acquaintances. You ever done that with somebody? Somebody said, hey, are you and so-and-so friends? Well, I know him. Acquaintances, right? He just got arrested. I don't know him at all, right? I always love it on, like, uh, television shows, like after there's a serial killer or a murderer or something, they always go to the neighbor, and the neighbor's like, I never saw it coming. Never, right? You never saw your neighbor being a serial killer? That's a bit strong, like when they were killing animals or something, that didn't raise any red flags. Um, <laughs> it's really, this is how I thought about this verse. I'm sorry if this doesn't hit. Um, so we fly, and sometimes I take my boys with me when we go places. And um, they've been flying because we lived in Europe for a while. Like they've been flying since they were little kids. They know exactly the routine of take off your shoes and belt and go through the conveyor belt and like don't bring knives, guns, explosives, fireworks. You know, normal stuff you got in your stinking pockets because we got to go through a metal detector or whatever. And I've always thought it's funny because, you know, like 
you, about once a year, there'll be some athlete that gets caught in their, in their check-in bag has a gun in it. Or they're like, carry on. And it's like, as that comes through, it's like, whose gun is this? And you just like walk away. You know what I mean? Like, who says, oh, that's my gun. Sorry about that. I just know I did a federal offense. And so I always have this like, I don't know about you, anxiety when I go through airports that, they're, that I'm going to get arrested. All right? I just feel like I've done something wrong, whether I have or not. And so we go, last time we're flying, I promise you this. Last time we're flying, kids going through the thing. I went through first uh, with one of my children, my other son, Deacon. I even calling him out. He just comes through the thing, and the whole thing goes off like a fire alarm. And I was like, oh, my God. He has 42 quarters in his pockets. <laughs> like, for what? He pays for nothing. What is he doing? And you know, like, there's a line of 100,000 people behind us. And his pants, I should have noticed his pants couldn't even hold up. And he's coming through. And they're like, whose kid is this? I was like, his mother's. It's his mother's kid. And in that moment, it's like, you just want to like, leave that kid, walk away. I've got another son, let's go, right? But it's like, who knows this kid? And you're like, it's me, and I clearly didn't prepare him for a metal detector. And so we have to deal with that. Isn't this like what we do in our relationships? In a book, Solson Henson uh, wrote a book which is an attack on communism. And it's called Gulag Archipelago. And it, I would really recommend it as a book to understand how communism just completely took over Russia. Like a wave, a tidal wave. And he said one of the things was is they began to arrest the neighbors. Like as the police went neighborhood to neighborhood and neighbor to neighbor... The thing, and they started having quotas that they had to arrest so many people, whether they were guilty or not. What was crazy is how quickly people turned on their neighbors when the police showed up at their door. They started to say, it's either you or you turn in one of your neighbors. And they say, do you want the list alphabetically or in reverse order? It's like, when the police show up, we downgrade relationships real quick. And that's what Peter's done here. Saying, I don't, I don't know him. Which is ironically exactly what Jesus is going to look at tons of people and say in the last day, I never knew you. Peter's foot-shaped mouth is oddly silent now, isn't it? There's three testimonies that happen in this flow at the end of 14. One testimony that we'll get into next week is the false testimonies of people making Jesus out to be something he's not. Then we get also Jesus' telling of the truth on himself about who he truly is, testifying. And what we see here is Peter lying about his relationship to Jesus in front of a little girl. What's fascinating is that Jesus can stand before the most powerful men of his day and not flinch about the truth. And Peter can't stand before even a little girl. That contrast is rough. But there's also hope here. Peter's not done. As I alluded to last week, he's going to, in Acts chapter 5, rejoice that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. He's going to become that guy. He's going to say, I'm grateful that Jesus thought I could handle being imprisoned and beaten and threatened. He's going to rejoice that he suffers in the book of Acts. He's not that guy yet. He's also going to be the guy that's going to go to Rome and he's going to be crucified upside down because he's going to say, I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up like my master Jesus. He's going to die for the gospel. By the way, some of my gray hairs, in his old age. He's not going to die a young cat. He's going to be old and still zealous enough to die for Jesus. Give me those kind of old people around me. 
He's just not that guy yet. And here's the thing, and I, I take great encouragement from this. Jesus is not done with Peter. Jesus is going to make him what he thought he was before the denial. You're not there yet, Peter. But I'm going to make you more than your arrogance actually dreams of. In the meantime, let your worst day work its magic on your soul. Let it humble you all the way to the ground. Like, ride that humiliation to its proper and righteous destination till you arrive at the throne of grace and you realize how much you need me. Not your sword. Not your words. Not your bravado. Write it. Let it work what I intend for it to work in you. Listen here. Do you remember your worst day? I mean, some of you got some multiple days that are in competition with one another. Alright? Do you remember? I mean, it's just the worst of the worst. That even if you started to talk about it, it would probably ruin the day. Like... It was just rock bottom of rock bottom for you. Um, I, I had a, um, a young man that I did discipleship with in Oklahoma. I love this guy. Love this guy. He's actually from exactly the same hometown as me, um, but is like uh, 12 years younger than me or so. And uh, I got him when he graduated high school. He didn't go into college. He became the primary um, drug dealer for southern Oklahoma and north Texas. So he's one of my people, okay? And he was the main distributor for acid in southern Oklahoma and north Texas. And um, he had a bad trip where he had gotten new drugs in and tried them himself and just had this like horrific trip where he envisioned himself in hell and that demons were attacking him. And he doesn't remember how it all ended, but he was running from them. Ended up, if you take him out of the spirit world, he was naked in our hometown, and the multiple police had to tase him and tackle him to put him down. He was in such a bad way from what it did to his body that they had to uh, transport him to Oklahoma City. And he was so shocked by the experience. Now, his parents' reputation, I mean, everybody knew what he was doing, but he had hit this bottom, and he felt spiritually in clarity that he was going to hell, if not already living there. And he had a sense of the demonic that was in his life and where the path was leading him. He turned from his sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. It was awesome. I met with him in Taco Bell, uh, which is where good discipleship happens. Uh, for like four dollars. That's when you got a ministry budget, you gotta uh you can't do Zias. Oh my god. Um and so Matt and Taco Bell, and this guy just had such a heart to go back into hell and rescue other people. And and, and I, I loved him because he leveraged his worst days to create a lot of the best days for all of his friends. He leveraged his worst day. He went back and led a handful of guys that he did drugs with and sold drugs with to Christ. Um, he later, as we did this option, I, I took him to the Middle East with me and shared the gospel with Muslims. He would later go back by himself and lead his own team, um, actually into Morocco, wherever the birds are, and share the gospel with Muslims there. He married a great young woman. And now he's serving God in every which way he can so that somebody can have the best day because of how God redeemed his worst day. And I love that story. And I love that man. Because he shows to me the gospel. That some of us have been um, in a dark place and thinking that we've been buried. Thinking um, that it's over. But we've not been merely buried, we've really been planted. And just as they buried Jesus, 
thinking they controlled him, they handled him, and that it was over. And just like maybe Peter in this moment is self-loathing and burying himself, he's not really buried, he's planted. And when he rises, there's going to be a new Peter. There's going to be in Jesus, when he rises from the grave, new life. And if you could see, if you could see where he started, you would appreciate differently how far he's come. And so from his worst day to his final day, God is willing, wanting, desiring to leverage some of your worst days so that when you rebound, you can encourage your brothers. Let me pray for you. With every head bow and eye closed, I want to say this. Some of you have never experience the blessing of being exposed. Where your worst sin is on the 5 o'clock news. Where your worst days are known by everybody where you live. And because of that, you hide. You hide in church. You hide from the rest of us who you really are. And if you can't be honest about your sin, I would argue you can't be honest about your Savior. My friend had the blessing of God exposing him such that hiding was no longer an option. Our friend Peter had the same experience. Are you willing to bury that? That something new may live. If that's you, I just, I want to encourage you with all of my heart to end up where Peter ended up. And that's at the feet of Jesus, telling him how much he loved him. Hearing that he had a work to do of feeding sheep and encouraging brothers. But I want you to take your worst day and your worst failure. I want you to trade it to Jesus. Trade it for his life, his resurrection. Would you do that? Just between you and the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Begin here. Begin here. Begin in me. Begin in us. Rip from our hands the controlling power of our worst days so that we might use our hands and our lives to bring others into their best days. God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and respond in worship?